0: Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for coming to support our fellows. Um, And welcome to those who are watching remotely. I'd like to introduce our second out of four graduating fellow presentations. Um, Dr. Ananta Bhatt, who will be discussing updates in bladder cancer today. Dr. Bhatt came to us in June 2014 after completing residency at the University of Cincinnati. She went to medical school and graduated with honors from Mahari Medical College in Nashville. Did I say that right? And she graduated magna cum laude with a Bachelor of Science in Biology from Belmont University in Nashville and was salutatorian in her high school class at White House High School in White House, Tennessee. During the course of her fellowship, she was co-author on a review published in 2015 on systemic chemotherapy for brain metastases in extensive stage small cell lung cancer. She has presented several posters at ASH, ASCO, and AACR on lymphoma, melanoma, and lung cancer, and was first author and gave an oral presentation at NECOS in 2015 on plasma ghrelin levels in patients with pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma. Dr. Bott has accepted a position with Lahey Clinic in Burlington, Mass. When she, after she graduates, June 30th, we will miss her and wish her all the best in her career and hope she visits often. So, without further ado, Dr. Bot. Oh, in, in terms of disclosures, um, she does not have any financial interests. She does intend to discuss once, very briefly, some off-label use of a product. Um, and is not receiving any direct payments from a commercial entity with respect to this activity. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Can everybody hear me okay? So good afternoon, and thank you all for joining. Um, As stated, I'm gonna be discussing updates in bladder cancer, and um, I'm gonna be briefly discussing an off-label use of drug called Afatinib later on in my presentation. Through my talk, I'm going to be discussing epidemiology, risk factors, and clinical presentation of bladder cancer, and most of my presentation is going to be focused on established treatments for bladder cancer and some of the newer drugs that have come out, specifically post-2016, and focus on immuno-oncology as well as some targeted therapies. So briefly, bladder cancer, it's the fourth most common cancer in men. And its incidence is about 79,000 cases per year with about 17,000 deaths. It's more predominant in men with 3 to 1 ratio between men and women. And it affects Caucasians more often than African-Americans and Hispanic, with 2 to 1 distribution. It is a cancer of older individuals. Median age for men is about 69 and 71 years for females. Risk factors for bladder cancer, smoking. Smoking is bad it causes lots of different cancers. There's a relative risk of three to seven folds. Um, We, of course, advise all patients to stop smoking, um, but in bladder cancer, it is to note that even when they stop, their risk does not go down to zero. They still have a higher risk than somebody who may never have smoked. Other risk factors include chronic infections, inflammation, um, like cystosomiasis, patients with congenital malformation or spinal cord injuries. And the thought is that these inflammatory infectious state are leading to a lot of cell turnover, and maybe there's a risk for some neoplastic changes to develop. Radiation is a risk factor, as is chronic chemotherapy like cyclophosphamide. Not so common in this country, but aromatic amine exposure and arsenic exposure are other chemical risk factors and then patients with genetic diseases like HNPCC or lynch syndrome which is associated with colon cancer and cowden's disease which has benign hematomas Um, they also are higher risk for uh, bladder cancer textbook clinical presentation for bladder cancer is usually painless hematuria and um, there have been some studies seeing if can hematuria be used as a screening tool however (laughs) They were deemed to be non-effective because there are so many other diseases like infections that can cause hematuria. Patients can also present with dysuria and increase urinary frequency. And if they're presenting with more advanced disease, they may have some mass um, which can result in some pain. I'm going to briefly talk about uh, staging, T1 staging. So T1, um, it's tumor that invades the subepithelial connective tissue T2 invades the muscle, T3 invades the perivesical tissue, and T4 invades the contiguous organ. But for all all important purposes, how are we using this for our treatment decisions is really muscle invasive, which is this category, versus muscle non-invasive bladder cancer. And before 2016, these were our options, um, how we would treat patients with bladder cancer. So briefly, patients with non-muscle invasive disease, they would undergo a transurethral resection of the bladder tumor, and they may or may not get BCG, intravesical BCG or mitomycin, but usually no systemic therapy is needed in that situation. And then patients with invasive disease, um, prior to getting radical cystectomy, they get neoadjuvant mvac or gemcitabine plus cisplatin adjuvant therapy is really not used um, because patients after radical cystectomy have a prolonged recovery period and uh, they are not able to tolerate or complete these regimens so neoadjuvant um, treatment is recommended and then in metastatic line which is what i'm going to focus on for first line we have gemcitabine plus cisplatin mvac or gemcitabine plus carboplatin And then the second line, we don't really have any standard internationally accepted therapies. There have been some small studies looking at paclitaxel, docetaxel, and in Europe, they use vinflunine, which is a microtubule inhibitor. It's only approved in Europe. It's not approved in this country. So briefly about bladder cancer, 25% of the patient will either present or later develop bladder cancer with metastases and systemic chemotherapy is our standard treatment option for them. Median survival is about 15 months, and five-year survival rate is about 15%. And second-line chemotherapy, we really um, only have limited role, but with the new wave of immunotherapy, uh, we hope additional options arise. I'm going to briefly talk about the first-line chemotherapy, These regimens are either cisplatin-based or without cisplatin, and it's really dependent on patient's overall health state and their comorbidities. So if they're medically fit, they can get either MVAC, which is uh, methotrexate, vinblastine, doxorubicin, and cisplatin, or they can get treatment with gemcitabine plus cisplatin. Now patients who are medically unfit, um, poor performance status, they have renal dysfunction, hearing loss, neuropathy, or grade three heart failure, All those are side effects of um, the cisplatin or the anthracycline regimen. So carboplatin is given to these patients. So this study um, published in JCO in 1992, it was a phase three study with about 269 patients and they were randomized to MVAC or cisplatin. And the study significantly favored MVAC with an overall response rate of 39% versus 12% of the cisplatin alone arm and progression-free survival of 10 versus 4 months. And the median overall survival also favors MVAC with eight, 12.5 versus 8.2 months. MVAC does have higher toxicities. There's more myelosuppression leading to neutropenic fevers, infections, sepsis, and the patients also have mucositis and some GI symptoms. So in 2000, JCO published an article, another phase 3 looking at 400 patients, and they were randomized to MVAC versus gemcitabine plus cisplatin. And the two regimens were pretty similar. The overall response rate was 49% in the MVAC and 46% in gemcitabine plus cisplatin. It was not significantly different. None of these um, differences, they were not significant. Time to progression was seven months in both arms. And oral survival between MVAC and gemcis was 15 versus 14 months, not significant. And five-year survival was 15 versus 13 percent. So, in the overall survival, overall response, they were pretty comparable between the two regimens. But the important thing is, we noted that gemcitabine plus cisplatin has a much better toxicity profile. There were less, comparatively less grade three-four toxicities. Um, <sighs> Neutropenia in gem cis was about 71%. Neutropenic sepsis was 2%, and mucositis was 1% in the gemcitabine cis arm. So for most patients, um, like I said, this is a patient diagnosed in their late 60s, 70s, we do use the gemcitabine cisplatin regimen. Now, patients who have been deemed unfit, they are offered gemcitabine plus carboplatin. There was a study in JCO published in 2012, ERTC-30986 study that had about 230 patients with poor performance status, renal dysfunction, and they were randomized to gemcitabine plus carboplatin versus methotrexate, carboplatin, and vinblastine. Of note, this is not the same MWAC regimen that I mentioned before. And between these two arms, there was really no statistical significance. Response rates were 41 versus 30%. Uh, median survival was nine months in the gemcitabine cis versus eight months in the M-methotrexate carboplatin blastine arm, but it was not significant. And progression free survival was six versus four months. Again, not significant. And we also importantly noted that gemcitabine plus carboplatin had a better overall grade 3-4 toxicity, 9% versus 21%. So it is these drug that is used in patients who already have uh, multiple comorbidities. Second line, chemotherapy in metastatic state. As I mentioned, really, we don't have good phase 3 studies. Um, Taxanes have a response rate of 10 to 20%, and that's based on small um, 20 to 30 patient studies. This phase 3 study was published in JCO. It was conducted in Europe. And they had 370 patients randomized to vinflunine versus best supportive care. And oral survival was 6.9 months favoring the vinflunine arm versus best supportive care. Um, but the overall response rate was about 12% and one year survival of 26%. So this is kind of a summary of where we are. For the last 20 plus year, we have been Within these limited number of drugs and haven't had many new options for our patients, particularly for patients with multiple comorbidities, um, so first line, good uh, performance status, cisplatin. Um, some of these num- the overall response rate this is a, these data are from meta-analyses are a little bit higher from the study I mentioned before, um, but this was in an era where patients were getting MVAC um, plus GCSF um Colony-stimulating uh, factor to help boost the white blood cells, so they had less toxicities. But the overall response rate about 50 to 60 percent, median overall survival of 15 months, and one-year overall survival of 60 percent. In patients with multiple comorbidities, they offer carboplatin-based regimen, and their responses, um, their overall response is much less, 36 percent, with median overall survival of nine months. And a one-year overall survival of 37. Again, second line, not many options. Um, in general, with the with the taxanes, is about 10%. Vinflunine, only approved in Europe, had a one-year overall survival of 26% and median overall survival of seven months. So all in all, we always seek to provide new therapies um, for all of our patients that can improve their quality of life and overall survival. So that brings us to this new wave, the immuno-oncology. So I'm gonna go over these, these trials. Patients who had received platinum previously and progressed. Since 2016, all these drugs have been approved based on phase two, phase one studies. Um, it started out with atezolizumab, which was an um, in invigor 210 cohort two. It was approved in May of last year. It's a pdl one inhibitor. Uh, nivolumab was approved in uh, February of this year. <coughs> Dervalumab and Avelumab were approved recently this month. And then pembrolizumab. They also looked at patients who were unfit to receive platinum. And they looked at immunotherapies in first-line setting. And the first part of this, inv- first cohort of this Invigor210 looked at adalizumab in platinum unfit patients and also there's a study looking at pembrolizumab in platinum unfit patients so briefly discussing how how this works and how they're we're able to change how tumors grow and, and affect their proliferation so T cells express PD-1 program death 1 and tumor cells express program death ligand 1 when those two interact the tumor cells very cleverly evade the immune system, are able to grow and proliferate. With immune therapies, when we're able to block the PDL one or the PD-1 with inhibitors, the T cell receptors are able to recognize um, antigens on tumor cells as foreign. And they're able to mount an immune response um, and leading to tumor or cancer cell death. So, starting out with our first drug, atezolizumab. Um, It was a study conducted by Dr. Rosenberg, and it was published in Lancet of 2016, a phase two trial. And it looked at patients with metastatic bladder cancer who had progressed following platinum therapy. They were in relatively good, good health, ECOG performance status, and renal function was normal. And this is the cohort two of this study. They had a total of 300 patients, and they were given a 200 milligrams every three weeks. And their primary endpoints was overall, overall response rate, and the secondary endpoints were duration of response and overall survival. They also tested patients for uh, PDL1 expression. And in their study, they used this interesting scoring system uh, where patients who had more than 5% expression received a score of 2 or 3, less than 1% received a score of 0, and everybody in between was 1. And as I'm going to go through the various study, this cutoff of what is considered high score, intermediate, or low score varies by different studies. And I think that's true in... Um, studies that have been conducted in, in other malignancies like lung cancer or um, melanoma. So in this study, uh, the median age was 66. But of note, there were some elderly patients. There were some patients as old well as 91 that were involved in this trial. 78% of the patient had visceral liver disease, a uh, visceral disease, and 31% being in the liver. And in general, those patients have a poorer prognosis. The PDL one status scores of 2, 3, 1, and 0 were pretty similar. And this is kind of what led to its approval and um, expedited approval of all the other drugs. Um, overall response rate in all comers was about 15%. Of note, patients with higher expressions of um, PD-L1 had higher response, so score of 2 to 3 had 26% overall response rate, and score of zero had 8%. But nonetheless, everybody did respond. The Mm -hmm. exciting thing or the thing that we want to treat patients with these drugs is that they tend to have a longer duration of treatment response. We see that the median time for response is around two months, which is comparable to what it has been in other other, um, malignancies. And at their median follow-up time of about 17.5 months, 75% of the responders, their responses were ongoing, and 86% of the complete responses were ongoing at their median follow-up time. And they looked at overall survival as well in all comers. Median overall survival was of 7.9 months, and of course higher in patients with higher uh, pdl one expression, about 11 months, versus 6.7 in the patients with the lower expression. The side effect profiles I think are pretty comparable to what is seen with these drugs and other malignancies, some fatigue, um, and the immune-mediated side effects in about 10% of the cases. Moving on to nivolumab, checkmate 275, um, a phase two study by Dr. Sharma was published in Lancet of this year. And they had similar uh, patients with locally advanced bladder cancer. And for their pdl one tissue sampling, they used greater than equal to 1% and greater than equal to 5% as their cutoff. And they had 270 patients who were given nivolumab three milligrams per kilogram every two weeks, and they were given this treatment until progression or they had toxicities. And again, we see similar findings that the oral response rate in all comers was about 19.6 months, higher in patients who had higher expressions of PDL one so 28.4 in more than 5%, and 16 in patients with less. They also had some complete responses, 4.9% uh, of the patients who had higher expressions of PDL1. Similarly, as previously seen, um, the time of duration is about uh, two months, and duration of response at their um, cutoff of six months was not yet reached, and 77% of the responses were ongoing at that time. The overall survival Showed that all treatment uh, groups, though also I was about 8.7 months, again higher in patients who had higher levels of PDL1 expressions. Another study looking at pembrolizumab by Dr. Belmont um, was published this year in New England Journal of Medicine. And they looked at patients um, who had metastatic bladder cancer. And they divide, randomized them to receive pembrolizumab every three weeks versus investigators' choice. And they were given either paclitaxel, docetaxel, or vinflumine. And their primary um, objectives were overall survival and progression free survival. And in this study, their PDL1 combined positive score, they looked at more than 10%. And similarly to prior studies, uh, we do have patients in their 80s um, in both groups that were including in the trial. Um, patients had good performance status, and about 88% of the patient has visceral disease, 33 or 34% being in the liver. And we also note that most of the patients um, in this study, they had pdl one level score of less than one, um, about 40 percent, and 27 percent has a score of more than 10 percent. And the confirmed objective response in total population in the pembrolizumab arm was about 21 percent versus 11 percent in the chemotherapy arm, and this was significant. And then further looking at patients with higher expression of PDL one more than 10 percent, 21 percent, in, in the, for pembrolizumab and 6.7 in the chemotherapy arm. And similarly, we see um, that in pembrolizumab, the median time to response is around two months. And in this group, the duration of response was not reached at their cutoff point. And they noted that patients who had responded for more than 12, 12 months, about 68% were still responding at that time. In the chemotherapy arm, again, the median time to respond was that two-month period, but their median duration of response was about four months. And uh, patients who had response with 12 months, only 35%. And their overall survival data also favored uh, pembrolizumab with median overall of 10 versus 7.4 months, and this was significant as well. And side effects, with pembrolizumab, you have the immune-mediated side effects, less than 10% of the patients. And with the chemotherapy, with the taxane specifically, you have the infusion reaction. But this is pretty comparable of how these drugs behave in other, other malignancies. Moving on to our um, next drug, drovalumab. Uh, it was a study 1108 dose escalation and dose expansion study and they had patients with various tumors, and they did include patients with bladder cancer, and they received durvalumab, 10 milligrams, every two weeks, and their primary endpoints was safety and tolerability. In this study, they noted that the oral response rate was about 31%, Um, but here, when they separate PDL positive and PDL negative, it's Noted that pd positive was about 46% had an overall response rate and pd l negative was zero But further kind of dissecting this um, It was really deeply embedded like in the supplemental um, Data the first five patients they had the pd expression of 25% but the subsequent one they used the cutoff of 5% And Responses are again that eight eight weeks time frame. And eight of the 13 responses were evident at their first scan, which was around um, eight weeks. And about 92% of the patient had ongoing uh, response on their last follow-up at around 26 week, And the duration of response was not reached. In Lancet of this year, another study, Checkmate 032, by Dr. Sherma looked at a combination of nivolumab and ipilimumab. And they were metastatic advanced urothelial cancer, and they randomized patients to either um, get nivolumab one milligram per kilogram plus ipilimumab three milligram uh, per kilogram versus nivolumab three milligram per kilogram plus ipilimumab one milligram per kilogram. And then they followed it. Everybody got nivolumab three milligram per kilogram every two weeks. And they noted that in the Nivo one ip three arm, thirty eight point five percent of the patient there was an overall response rate of thirty eight point five, versus twenty six percent in nevo three ip one. There were some patients who also had complete responses in both groups. And in their median overall survival, um, they noted that nevo one ip three had an overall survival of ten months versus seven point three. In the nevo3 ip one arm and again the treatment side effects um, are pretty comparable Um, these are immune mediated side effects and they're again seen um, in lung and melanoma where these drugs are more commonly used and then the the ilumab which was most recently approved this month uh, phase 1b study was published in jco and in this study, they had 44 patients, and they had previously received cisplatin but progressed, and they were treated with avulumab 10 milligrams per kilogram every two weeks. And their median overall survival was about 13.7, um, and their overall survival rate at 12 months was about 54 percent, a little bit higher than what we have seen in the other drugs. And then they also looked at patients who had PDL1 expression and their cutoff was 10% in the study. Patients, overall survival rate at 12 months, uh, for patients who had PDL1 expression, it was not estimatable. And then with PDL1 negative, it was about 12.9 months. And we see that there were a lot of patients who continued to have responses even after their, their cutoff around 52, 54 months weeks. And side effect profile is pretty similar to the other drugs. Um, immune media, in this study, the immune-mediated side effects was less than 5%. Now, moving on to patients who are deemed unfit to receive cisplatin. Um, previously, we were giving them gemcitabine plus carboplatin. Um, the cohort one of InVigor210, they looked at atezolizumab, Um, in patients who were not able to receive cisplatin for advanced or metastatic bladder cancer. And this was done by Dr. Baller and colleagues and published in Lancet last year. So we're going to look at the cohort one. Um, They received atezolizumab, 1200 milligrams every three weeks. And you can see the criteria that they used that deemed the patients um, ineligible for cisplatin. And what I thought was interesting, there were, 21% of the patients were older than 80, of, 80 years of age, and 66 had visceral disease. And most of the patients were not able to get cisplatin due to their renal dysfunction. And in all comers, again, we see an overall response rate of about 24% higher in patients who had higher levels of PD-L1 expression. And we again see a few patients um, with complete responses. Interestingly, when looking at their overall survival data, all comers' overall survival was about 15.9 months. That was their median overall survival. But when we look at patients who had higher IHC score, or they had higher expressions of PDL1, their oral survival was twelve point three months versus nineteen for patients who had received who had lower expression of PDL1. And this was an unexpected finding. This has not been shown in any of the other trials that I mentioned today. And they, there was really not a good explanation as to why, but they thought maybe the tumor uh, tumor burden or tumor microenvironment, as well as the variability of detecting these um, the is used to get uh, pd one expression. But this was an unexpected finding. Another study by Dr. Bala, which was published um, in Annals of Oncology last year, looked at pembrolizumab as first-line um, setting. It was a phase 2 study, Keynote 052, and they gave patients pembrolizumab, and they evaluated for overall response rate, and their PDL1 one um, cut up point in this study was about ten percent, and again the complete overall uh, the objective overall response rate was twenty-four percent in this in the study. And again, we see that the median follow-up um, the time for response is about two months, about eight weeks or two months, and um, they rec- recorded that at eight months when they were an- analyzing. Um, the median duration of response was not reached, and a patient, 83% of the patients still had ongoing response at six months, or more than six months. So I talked through a lot of studies. This is a kind of summary of all of these uh, trials. Um, immunotherapy has offered great options for many other malignancies. We hope that similar options um, can be for bladder cancer. All of these trials have been kind of designed in a very similar fashion. <laughs> they have same patient characteristics. And for most of them, the overall response rate is about 20% with higher inpatients who had higher levels of pdl one expression. Um, but I think we're still waiting for phase three data to see if this holds true. Um, and then the dilemma would be which one we use because I think pharmaceutical industries are in a race to get more and more drugs approved and used. Immunotherapy has been the new kid on the block. It's been studied, um, but we should not forget targeted therapies because they have offered great options um, in other malignancies. And in ASCO, amongst all of the abstracts that showed um, how wonderful these immunotherapies, there were two trials um, that were looking at targeted therapies that I wanted to share. One is looking at drug infograntinib, BGJ398, and then Afatinib was the other drug that was studied. So in JCO 2016, they looked at efficacy of BGJ398, which is a fibroblast growth factor receptor one through three inhibitor. And it belongs to the tyrosine kinase receptor. And there's some studies that this may actually hold a favorable prognosis in bladder cancer. It is more often seen in patients who have muscle-non-invasive bladder cancer than muscle-invasive. But they have noted that patients who express this tend to do better. And in this study, they... Uh, treated patients with the study drug BGJ398, and it was three weeks on, one week off, or a 28-day cycle. Prior to um, starting the treatment, they confirmed that they had the FGFR genetic alteration. So they had 44 patients in the study, and they noted that the oral response was about 35%, and uh, 59% of the patient had some type of disease control. And in this graph, um, a lot of patients again had continued duration of response. The other drug, which is which is not approved, used in uh, lung cancer, is a fat and that was published in JCO uh, by Dr. Jadri last year. Um, it's looking at the ERBB and HER2 uh, family. It's a class of tyrosine kinases. And we know that EGFR overexpression expression leads to high tumor grade, muscle invasiveness, and tumor recurrence. And then HER2, which we know more commonly in breast cancer, is associated with recurrence and metastasis. In bladder cancer, they've noted that 11% of bladder cancers have EGFR amplification, 7% have HER2 amplification, and 11% have this ER, BBB3 somatic mutations. And Afatinib, it's an oral irreversible tyrosine kinase inhibitor um, of the ERB receptor family. And again, it's approved in lung cancer. But they wanted to see, given that 11% of the patients have these amplifications, can this be used? So in this study, they had about 23 patients, and they had previously received at least one platinum-based chemotherapy, and they received a continuous therapy with a FATNF, 4 milligrams per day, until their disease progressed. And they noted that patients who had the HER2 ERBB molecular alteration, um, their median progression-free survival was about 6.6 versus patients with no alterations, their median progression-free survival was about 1.4 months. And the adverse side effects as seen with the fatinib but other malignancies is diarrhea, they can get acne form rash, um, fatigue, but it's pretty comparable to what is seen in other malignancies. So, I went through the chemotherapies that we had pre-2016, which kind of seemed like was we were stuck in those few therapeutic options. With immunotherapy and targeted therapies, we have a lot more options to offer of our patients with bladder cancer, especially patients who are deemed medically unfit, uh, patients with um, who usually would get carboplatin-based therapy. So um, I think we have to wait for phase three studies looking at um, the results of these immunotherapy and targeted therapies um, and see if they really hold true. Uh, But... All in all, as I was going through all these studies, it's, it's an exciting time in oncology um, and, and overwhelming, I guess, as a fellow, because you're getting bombarded with all these new drugs that are getting a- approved and just kind of figuring out which, which ones to use and in what order to use. Those will be the next, next questions. Um, so stay tuned and, and we hope that phase three studies will uh, Will offer new options for patients with bladder cancer who have metastatic disease. So, with that, thank you for your attention. Um, I'll take any questions or comments. Yes. In, the, in the randomized trials of the checkpoint inhibitors against
0: chemotherapy, would they study quality of life endpoints? So, you know, toxic use, just kind of both, both, also quality
1: of life. They did not study quality of and that's I think that's something I personally struggle with, that all these improvements, it's not like they're getting two years. Um, but for some patients the immunotherapies the toxicities use are less than with chemotherapy, but I don't they did not look for the overall quality of life between those two groups.
0: In my favorite medical journal, the New York Times, a few months ago, there was a, an article about the checkpoint inhibitors and the investigational the, the studies that people on the interview, the people who have had major immune side effects and ended up in ICUs for weeks and ended up with, with, with insulin-dependent diabetes. And to a person, each one of them said, oh, I have diabetes, but I don't have cancer. I would do this all over again. So right. Right. Yes. How much better are any of
1: these on a survival basis than the supportive care? So there's no the only best supportive of care versus chemotherapy was in the Europe, the venflunine arm, and it was a benefit of about two months. But in regards to the checkpoint inhibitors, um the oral survival in patients who are just getting first-line first, first line chemotherapy is about 15 months, and the oral responses in the checkpoint inhibitors was about in a similar range. So in that sense, it's hard for me to, to tell, but I think the bigger deal with the Phase three studies is the duration of response. Um, some of the studies did show that the duration of response was much shorter in the chemotherapy arm. I think one of the studies, it was just four months versus in the um, checkpoint inhibitor arm, they had to reach that o- the duration of response. Um, so I think phase, there's no compared, had to head comparison in immunotherapy versus best supportive care. Um, but I think what we're looking for is how well the duration of response is for these patients.
0: And what's
1: that problem? The Vinflunine? It's a microtubule inhibitor, it's not approved here, it's only approved in in Europe. But yeah, in that drug, it was a benefit of two months or best supportive care. And I think the other patients that immunotherapy will really be beneficial for is the patients who cannot get cisplatin, because gemcitabine plus carboplatin, the um, median survival, it's much, much less, around nine months. So for those patients, maybe it offers a, a better line of therapy, even as first line.
0: I noticed that many of the survival curves uh, look flat at the end, like around two years. And do you know if they stay flat like this, meaning that we can probably think about cure or?
1: I'm not sure. So the duration of response is long term for these, for most of the studies. Um, I don't know about cure, um, but I think phase three data will kind of tell us beyond that time how how this actually pans out. Um, Mm-hmm. This was an excellent summary in the study of disease. Are you aware of any trial immunotherapy that target diagnosed in
0: the earlier stage in bone
1: muscle invasive disease where you will be looking at cure the primary. Right. I didn't come across any studies um, that were looking at that. I think we have pretty good uh, available therapies and patients do well with that so even with non-muscle invasive they can undergo you know the TERP procedure and they make an intravesical mitomycin or BCG versus giving them chemotherapy or immunotherapy which has its own side effect and toxicity profile and even with those drugs we don't even know how long we continue immunotherapy we say two-year cutoff but how long do we want to put patients through that um, it's questionable. So I didn't come across any studies in the earlier stage that are curable, and they are curable with our current therapies. But I'm sure they will branch out there. <laughs> Dr. Mott, so do you have any
0: uh, idea about what's striking is the, the consistent response in those that are PDL one low? Um, do you think there's a different mechanism other than PDL l one that... that the
1: immunotherapy is working against? So I know there's a lot of talk of not only the pd one expression on the cells, but also in the microenvironment, and I think that plays a role. Um, but I don't, I don't think it's actually known. I don't know if – I told Dr. Shirai to come, was like, if I get asked <laughs> a very good question about so in lung cancer or melanoma. We don't,
0: we don't know yet. Some people are trying to combine with pd one expression plus mutation burden, they said predictive, predictive <clears throat> is better combining it. And also, we don't know yet. We do have patient PDL1 expression 0% with dramatic response, no side effect in non cancer, also.
1: So, yeah, we, we just don't know yet. <laughs> in, in line with that, is it possible that? Uh, even though it's PD-01 low, the PD-01 starts and the immune pressure increases, which then um, puts out something like interferon gamma or something, and now you get more PD-01. But if you're not doing recurrent biopsies to determine whether the PD-01 levels are changing, then you would never see that.
0: Um, so, I'm but, not yeah, sure. Good question. We do have several patients, we have serial PDA1 expression tests in lung cancer because that's in the only available test. We do see that. You know, some patient at the time of surgery PDA1 expression is zero percent, but after Azure and chemo went up to fifty-five percent. Those change as reflect future response. We don't know yet, but if we know PDA1 expression is fluid, it could change. Can you of still Thank you. Thank you.